Let me just remind you this morning, if you are <clears throat> a member of North Wake, that uh, today is a critical day, or really our, our most perfect day for signing up for Study Serve. Okay. Um, obviously, you, you're signing up to serve this time for a bit longer, but normally it's only six months. You'll be serving through the end of the year, and you'll see a video later to explain that. But because you only serve half of the time, that means we need, our margins are really small. Uh, the expectation in, is that everyone would serve, okay? Uh, for us to afford the luxury of you only serving half of the time, it means everyone must serve. And, and we will chase you down, okay? We do it every six months. We chase you down. Don't make us chase you down. You don't like being chased. We don't like chasing Sign up in the lobby today before you leave for a ministry that um, is much needed in our church. Uh, we whittle that down to, to the minimum of requirements so that we can uh, offer the study serve concept so you have a chance to sit under great teaching half the year and then serve out of that resource uh, the remainder of the year. So please take care of that today. Uh, it's of vital importance to our church. There is a, a YouTube video that's been making the rounds from uh, Conan O'Brien's late night talk show. Uh, it's entitled, Everything's Amazing and Nobody's Happy. And it has, a, it, it, it involves an interview he does with a comedian, Louis C.K. And in this video, Louis talks about essentially how entitlement can rob you of joy. And he, he tells some stories along that line. He talks about how uh, this generation, people gripe about their phones. They get their smartphone out and they look at it and they're like, this thing is so slow. And he's like, give it a second. He says, it's going to space. Okay? <laughs> Just give it a second. It's going to space and back. Just give it a second. He says... Um, he was, on a he was on a plane that offered in-flight Wi-Fi high-speed internet. He says they get up in the plane, and the flight attendant's voice comes over and says, you can now open up your laptop and ac access the internet. And sure enough, they open up it. It's one of the first planes to offer it, one of the ones he was on. They open up their laptops, and they're surfing the net while they're flying. Okay. And then it crashes, and the guy next to him curses, okay? And he says this about it. He says, um, how quickly the world owes him something that he didn't even know existed 10 seconds ago. He talks about how many of us describe less than perfect airline flights, he says, as if they were experiences from a horror film. He goes like this. He says, it was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes, and then they made us sit on the tarmac for 40 minutes. He says mockingly, oh, really? And then did you fly through the air incredibly? He says, did you experience the miracle of human flight? He says, everybody on a plane should be going, this is amazing. 
I'm sitting in the sky. Okay? But then they say, but it won't lean back far enough, right? Um, Everything's amazing and nobody's happy, he says. I think it could be said of us, of people who follow Jesus. Everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. It it can go like this. I got a speeding ticket yesterday. It's going to cost me a couple hundred bucks. How could God let that happen? You were speeding, okay? That's how God let it happen. Conversation with a friend. Had to have minor surgery last month. Lasered out some kidney kidney stones. I was in worse pain than I've ever been in my life. But next day, I was as good as new. But here's the deal. Insurance only covered a little more than half of it, so I'm out several grand. Sometimes I wonder if God loves me. So you had laser surgery that was immediately effective on your pain. And you had an out-of-pocket expense, so you questioned the love of God for you? Really? Everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. Contrast this with what Jesus is going to say at the end of the passage we're going to look at today. Um, Matthew chapter 9. These are the closing verses we'll look at, or right near them. Uh, The disciples of John came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, As long, I said, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus is essentially saying, it's too joyful to fast when I'm here. It's too good, too much joy. They just can't do it. It's too Amazing to be in the presence of the bridegroom, to go around in mourning, Jesus says. He goes on to say in the next couple verses, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins. And so both are preserved. Jesus says something with his coming, something new has happened. And there are huge theological backgrounds to the answer of the question, what's new? What is the new thing? It involves the old covenant and the new covenant. It involves Israel and the church and Israel and the nations. Um, But these things, I think what Jesus is saying is that these things bring a joy that simply cannot be contained in those old systems. It's getting too big for it. 
Everybody's, or everything's amazing and nobody's happy. That should never be said of us. Not, not if we understand that Jesus has come and what he's done for us. Um, and so today what we want to do is just be reminded of how amazing this faith of ours really is. And let it restore our joy. Okay? The joy of our salvation. I want to do that through the previous two encounters in Matthew chapter 9. So if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, as we work our way through the gospel of Matthew, that's where we are this morning. And I would like to, to pray for us as we do that. Let's, let's bow. God, have mercy on us. Help us to see and understand the wonder of our King Jesus and the privilege of being in his kingdom. In mercy, restore our joy to its fullness this morning. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Jesus is getting back into a boat, which has to make disciples incredibly nervous, if you remember what went on last week. He crossed over and he comes to his own city, the city of Capernaum. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, a paralyzed man, lying on a bed. That's all Matthew says about it. He says they brought him a man who was paralyzed on a bed, on a, like a stretcher of some kind. But if you were to flip over to Mark chapter 2, Mark records the same story with more color. He says when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So you get the picture? They couldn't get in because it was too crowded, so they tore the roof off and lowered their friend down in front of Jesus. So when, in Matthew's account, when it says, when Jesus saw their faith, I mean, literally, he saw their faith. They tore the roof off. They were so desperate to get to Jesus, and they lowered their friend down. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't think that's why they came. They didn't lower him down through the roof to get his sins forgiven. They wanted him to be healed. They came because he couldn't walk. But Jesus pronounces his sins forgiven. I suppose those things wouldn't have been unrelated in their mind because the common perception of that day was that there's a pretty direct connection between sin and sickness. You're sick? Next question, so what'd you do? You brought it on yourself was the prevailing thinking of the day. And it's, it's not that that's always not true or that there's not even a piece of it that's true. It's not that sin and sickness aren't related at all. There's just not a direct one-to-one -one correspondence. Um, not in every case. 
See, the scriptures teach that sickness is a result of sin in our world. Um, all sickness is caused by sin. Just not all of my sickness is caused by my sin. But the key point here is that Jesus pronounces this man's sins forgiven, whatever their cause. And it's not like he pronounces it. It's like he declares it to be so. Um, as though he has the authority to do it. It's like in a causative sense. And there are some scribes there, some Bible teachers there, and they pick up on the problem with this. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. They might be, maybe they were friends of the guy last week who wanted to get in the boat, that other scribe. They were Bible scholars. They knew who had authority to forgive sins. And they knew what it meant for someone to claim that authority. It was blasphemy. It was claiming to be able to do what was purely a divine act. This was God's prerogative. And honestly, they were right. This is blasphemy unless Jesus can back it up. Unless he could really do this. This is the first of three questions Jesus is going to be asked in the passage we're going to look at today. Each one comes from a different set of religious leaders. Mark records this conversation in the form of a question in his account. They ask, these scribes do, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This charge of blasphemy follows Jesus throughout his ministry. It's the thing that stuck to him that took him to the cross, legally speaking. The end of Matthew, we'll see this when we get there. Chapter 26, Jesus' his trial that would happen this week leading up to Easter said, The high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. So this blasphemy charge is going to take Jesus to the cross one day. But Jesus' response to these scribes thinking these things amongst themselves, Jesus says, knowing their thoughts, he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Okay. Jesus knew what they were thinking. Maybe this was supernatural, but not necessarily so. Jesus knew people. He knew these leaders. He knew what they were thinking. Let's be real clear about this, though, when Jesus says this. If you reject Jesus' claims, you align yourself with an evil ideology. Okay. If you reject that he is not God, Jesus says you are aligning yourself with evil. You are believing evil. You believe who he says he is and what he can do, or you're embracing evil, Jesus is saying here. He goes on, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, 
pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Okay, this is amazing. The guy who had to be carried in now carries his own bed out. Skipping, I think. It's probably in the Greek somewhere. Skipping. But beyond the physical miracle, something more amazing has taken place. Jesus has claimed to be able to forgive sins, and then he backs it up with a corresponding miracle. It goes like this. If he claims to forgive sins, he's either blaspheming or he has God's authority to forgive sin, which means he is God. Anybody can claim to forgive sins. Anybody could say those words. And if he truly can forgive sins, he should be able to remove sin's effects. Alan Ross puts it simply. He says, the point is that if Jesus can take care of the effects of sin by healing a paralytic or a leper or by raising a dead person, he can therefore also take care of the cause of the illness by forgiving the sin. So Jesus healed this man to show that he, the Son of Man, has the authority to forgive sins. If he could heal the disease, he could also heal the cause of the disease, the sin. If he had simply forgiven the sin, people would not have known if the man was forgiven or not. Now, he says, now they know. These stories, these miraculous, true stories of Jesus healing people in chapter 8 and now chapter 9. They are designed to show us who Jesus is and what it's like to be near him, okay? what life in the kingdom is like, especially, though, to show us what the king is like and the amazing authority that he has. So, buckle up. This is more amazing than sitting in the sky. Do you understand what this means? Do you understand what has just happened and what this means for you? It means all of your sins, all of them, each one which carries a death sentence before a holy and just God, each one. Every selfish, cowardly deed you've done, every one you can remember, and even the ones you've tried so hard to forget, even the ones you didn't know you did. Did you know there's a category of sin in the Old Testament called sins of ignorance? I mean, you thought you had a mountain of sin. There's another mountain right next to it you didn't even know about. Jesus has authority to forgive them all, all, every last one, to wipe the slate clean, holy, perfectly, forever clean. Max Lucado tells it this way, his story. He says there was a Chinese man named Li Fuyan 
He had tried every treatment imaginable to ease his throbbing headaches. Nothing helped. An x-ray finally revealed the culprit. A rusty four-inch knife blade had been lodged in his skull for four years. That could be, that could be a problem. In an attack by a robber, Fu Yan had suffered lacerations on the right side of his jaw. He didn't know the blade had broken off inside his head. No wonder, Lucado says, he suffered such stabbing pain. <laughs> Those are his words, not mine. Um, <laughs> but he makes, this, he makes this good insight, though. He says, we can't live with foreign objects buried in our bodies or our souls. What would an x-ray of your interior reveal? Regrets over an earlier relationship? Remorse over a poor choice? Shame about the marriage that didn't work? The habit you couldn't quit? The temptation you couldn't resist? The courage you couldn't find? Guilt lies, he says, hidden beneath the surface, festering irritating, sometimes so deeply embedded you don't know the cause. But Jesus has authority to forgive it all. All. And, and this is not idle chatter. Okay, He proved it when he said to the man, rise, pick up your bag, pick up your bed, go home. And then he did. This is amazing. Don't miss this. Don't forget it. Don't limit it. Don't water it down. He has authority to forgive them all. This is the first amazing kingdom truth that's designed to bring us great joy from our passage today. There's forgiveness in the kingdom. That's good news. So draw near. Draw near to the good and mighty king. He can forgive you. Everything's amazing. We should rejoice. Okay? There you go. Everything's amazing. We should rejoice. Let me draw out a couple of little details before we leave this story. Um, when we find ourselves in Jesus' story, which is always a good thing to do, to find ourselves in these stories with Jesus, where, where do we fit in? We are like the paralyzed man. Okay? We are helpless. We bring nothing to this encounter. No good works. Nothing. He just comes to Jesus. This is gospel. Okay? This is pure grace. Undeserved. Greatly needed. The other detail that I want to draw to your attention is back in verse 2, if you notice it, Jesus says he saw their faith. Not his faith, but their faith. Bob Deffenbaugh writes, he says, I do not wish to ignore the fact 
that there may well refer to the faith of five men, not just four. I don't want to suggest that the paralytic can be saved apart from personal faith, but I do wish to call attention to what Matthew is saying. The faith of these four men had something to do with his healing. And even with his being forgiven, Jesus responded to the faith of others when he granted this man healing and the forgiveness of sins. What an encouragement, he says. This should be for us to pray more frequently and more fervently for others. The faith of these men, expressed by their intervention on the paralytic's behalf, brought him not only the blessing of healing, but a forgiveness of sins. Our prayers on behalf of the lost really count, he says. I can see no other way to understand what I read here. Jesus saw their faith. Who is benefiting from your faith? Who are you bearing to Jesus by your faith? There's a second story. It brings a second question from a second religious group and a second amazing truth about the king and his kingdom. It's in the next few verses. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That very first verse, Jesus passed on from there, and he sees a fellow named Matthew. He's a tax collector. He's also known as Levi. He's an IRS man of the worst sort, okay? This is how um, some commentators have described tax collectors in this day. By Jewish law, a tax gatherer was debarred from the synagogue. Couldn't even show up for worship. <coughs> Excuse me. He was included with things and beasts unclean. Leviticus 20 verse 5 was applied to them. He was forbidden to be a witness in any case. Robbers, murderers, and tax collectors were classed together. They were swindlers. They were equated in some legal standings with pagan slaves. This is Matthew. This is the life he lived. Jesus reflects this, this attitude. Remember in Matthew 18, he's talking about the loving removal of somebody from, uh, from the body of his followers um, should they fail to repent on repeated invitation. He says if he refuses to listen to the church or to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, 
Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay. Totally removed from fellowship. But Jesus stops at Matthew's booth and he calls him. And Matthew follows. We don't know for sure, but some think that this Matthew might be the Matthew who wrote the gospel that you're reading right now. It could be that Matthew. Um, one of the 12 disciples, a tax collector. Jesus calls him and he follows, likely at great cost. Okay? As a tax collector, he was probably quite wealthy. And he had a house big enough to throw quite a party. The party, according to Mark, is at Matthew's house. And unlike the fishermen, he couldn't return to his nets from time to time. When Matthew walked away, he walked away from it once and for all. You can imagine what Mrs. Matthew thought when he came home after this encounter with Jesus and said, Guess what, honey? I sold the family business, and I'm going to be following Jesus around. It cost him greatly uh, to follow Jesus. But the focus here is really not so much on Matthew. It's on the party that he throws for his tax collector friends, which says, Jesus reclined at table in the house. Again, we know this to be Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Many tax collectors and sinners were there. So Jesus and his disciples hanging out with all these outcasts. It raises a second question from a second group of religious leaders, the Pharisees. And they want to know why is Jesus associating with sinners? Why is he eating with them? The Pharisees were Jews who had a reputation for excelling at observing their religious laws with exactitude. Okay? They lived in a closed community where admission was carefully regulated. If you wanted to be a Pharisee, you had to observe all the Pharisees' religious tradition which included tithing, even of spices, and ritual washings and elaborate dietary laws. A candidate would then be under probation for up to a year, during which his compliance with this myriad of laws was monitored. For the Pharisees, you had to clean up your act before you could associate with them. They functioned as a kind of religious honor society where you earned your right to associate with them. Okay. Cleaning up your act was a condition of association. And so, according to their, condition, or their tradition, there was a whole segment of society that no self-respecting Pharisee would associate with. They called them sinners. Okay. And so, this is their question, then. When the Pharisees see this party, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When he heard it, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, 
but sinners. Bob Deffenbaugh says the scribes were the theologians of that day, so we would expect them to express concern over the theological implications of Jesus' words to the paralyzed man. The Pharisees were the purists, the separatists of that day, and it's no wonder they would be troubled by the fact that Jesus was associating with sinners rather than with them, the righteous. The celebration seemed to have Jesus as a guest of honor at Matthew's house. Tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. It was one thing for a group of sinners to gather in celebration. It was quite another for Jesus to be their guest of honor. This is the second amazing thing about the kingdom. Sins are forgiven and sinners are welcome. Okay? It's for sinners. Um, more likely... Um, historians tell us these sinners were the blatant offenders of the Pharisees' rule of conduct. They were people such as pimps and prostitutes, thieves and gamblers. Jesus and his disciples were sharing table fellowship with these disreputable people. The Pharisees were scrupulous in their eating habits, not just in terms of food laws, but who they shared their meals with. For Jesus and his disciples to eat with such people was scandalous. It meant they were accepting these tax collectors and identifying with them as sinners. This was Jesus' reputation. Okay? Throughout the Gospels, repeatedly, you read things like this from Matthew 11. Jesus himself says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and tells them they need to study more. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but the sick do. Go and learn what this means. He says, go study more. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He quotes the Old Testament. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, Jesus' mission is stated clearly here. It's for the sick. It's for those who are not well in their souls. Okay? For sinners, not for the righteous. So it's helpful to think about the categories here. Who are the righteous and who are the sinners? The most important thing to think about is which category do you consider yourself in? Are you righteous or are you a sinner? How would you self-identify? If you're a self-identified righteous person, then you probably think things are pretty much okay with you and God. You've lived a pretty good life and God is largely pleased with you as a result. So things are probably okay. If you're a self-identified sinner, then you think things are not okay with you and God if it's based on your performance. You think that you're a moral failure and it's really not a problem for you to think of yourself with other tax collectors and sinners, even the pimps and the prostitutes. In your mind, that's where you belong. Which group do you self-identify with? Be honest with yourself. 
Which group do you self-identify with? See, this is of the utmost importance. If you don't identify yourself as a sinner, then Jesus did not come for you. Okay? That's what he just said. If you don't identify yourself as a great sinner, a spectacular sinner, then Jesus has not come for you. If you think you're mostly righteous and can stand before God in decent standing because of how you conducted yourself, you're going to get that chance one day. But I want to warn you, it's not going to turn out like you anticipated. Now, for those of us who identify ourselves as sinners, and I include myself happily in this group, great, prolific, skilled, relentless sinners, okay? This is amazing news. Jesus came for us. We get invited to the party. We don't have to self-clean up first. It's a come-as-you-are affair. Jesus cleans us up as we place our hope and trust in Him. So how do you self-identify? Okay. That's going to determine whether or not Jesus' work is for you or not. Sinner or righteous. He's come for the sick sinners. This is amazing. Okay. We should rejoice in this. In fact, we should throw a party. Don't you think? Like Matthew, we should throw a party. And uh, one of my uh, favorite evangelists is uh, Willow Creek's pastor, Bill Hybels, remarkable evangelist. Um, he says, um, in one of his books, he says, at Christmas time last year, I did what I have done every year following Willow, Willow Creek's Christmas Eve service. He said, I threw a Matthew party. He said, despite wall-to-wall -wall meetings, planning sessions, and run-throughs that week, my mind kept drifting to the Matthew party that was only days away. I couldn't wait, he said. I had invited about 20 people who were living extremely far from God by their own admission. These men and women had never been to Willow Creek before, had never been to my house before, and spiritually speaking, would profess to be going it alone. To that group, he says, I added about 20 people, he says, who were in the seeker-slow lane. The remedial class of Christianity, you might say. On the rare occasion when I would badger them mercilessly, they'd agreed to come to church. But it was sporadic attendance at best, usually involving a fair amount of kicking and screaming on their part. Most of them had been to my house previously to attend other parties, and all of them knew that I was working on them. Okay. <laughs> Nudging them along the very slow path to God, he says. Maybe they would step across the line of faith someday, but in my estimation, it was going to take some time, probably a lot of time, he said. So he says, in addition to the 20 or so people who are very far from God and the 20 or so people who are in progress types, I had sprinkled in a dozen or so very strong Christ followers from church to mix it up a bit. The screening process for this group in particular had been intense, he said. I knew I couldn't afford any overzealous types showing up. No truth vigilantes. No bounty hunters. 
just normal, mature, relationally intelligent, open-hearted, radically inclusive people who understood how high the stakes were that night. After all, I was going to put them in a room with friends of mine who, apart from a bona fide miracle, would spend eternity apart from God. He says, I wish you could have been there to watch what unfolded that night. In my house in Barrington, Illinois, in the 21st century, we enjoyed an approximation of Matthew's first century experience. It was incredible to witness so many God moments in the making. Not to mention, he says, it was just a heck of a party. The first time I glanced down at my watch, it was well past midnight, and guests ended up staying until 2 o'clock the next morning and left only because I kicked them out. But he says, sometime just before daybreak, my mind was still racing from the mystical aspects of the party. I thought to myself, the whole thing comes down to nights just like this one. The future of the kingdom of God comes down to whether individual rank-and-file Christ followers will do in their everyday lives what has just happened in my home tonight. Some of you have hospitality gifts. You can throw a party. You should throw these parties. You should open your home up for people from work and people from small group. And you should pray that Jesus shows up. You should have these parties. You can do this. We can all host a friend for dinner, though. We can all open up our home and exercise hospitality, love our neighbors. Speak of Christ to them as they come to our home, as we say grace over the meal and explain to them why we do that. I've told you before, my, um, my best friend in the neighborhood is an atheist. And so when they come to our house, we say grace. I take his kids to school every day. Steph and I do. And we pray over his kids in the car. He's okay with that. Matter of fact, when I go to his house, um, we have a meal. He says, Larry, you want to do your thing? <laughs> and, and he asked me to say grace. Um, when was the last time you had somebody outside of the church, inside your home? You can do this. You should do this. Hey, it's amazing, okay? This stuff's amazing. We should throw a party. And we should invite everybody we know. And we should pray that Jesus shows up. Everything's amazing. Sinners are welcome. We should, we should sure rejoice. Louis C.K. said it well, I think. Everything is amazing and nobody's happy. Maybe it's because what we, we've forgotten what Jesus is like, what it's like to be near him. He forgives our sins. All of them. He welcomes sinners. Folk like us. 
And he brings befuddling joy. Those disciples of John the Baptist, I don't have time to walk back through it again this morning. They're over there fasting. Some of their good friends who had started following Jesus are going to parties and drinking and carrying on. They want to know why. Jesus is why. And so today, we get to come to the Lord's table. It is, it is by its very nature, um, a reverent act. Okay. But it is also a joyful act. We are accepted at the table. Like the song that our team sang for us. Okay. He, has, he has carried us there. We with all our histories of sins and bad choices and selfishness, we are welcomed at the table by the work Christ has done on our behalf. And so when we come to the table today, we come with joy okay. to worship the one who has forgiven our sins, all of them, to worship the one who dines with sinners, even us, the one who brings great inexplicable joy. This privilege, it's amazing. Everybody should rejoice. Now the table, it's for believers. It's for people who buy what I'm telling you today. And so we are coming to remember what Christ did to make it all possible to make this forgiveness possible, to make this acceptance possible. He died a horrific death on the cross to make this possible. He rose from the dead on the third day, victory over death, to make this possible. And so we come to remember, to celebrate, to delight in, to honor, to worship, to love the one who gave his life for us. If you haven't believed yet, then this is your chance to believe. It's your chance to say, yes, yes, I want Christ to bear all my sins. Yes, I know that my acceptance is all of grace because he's just that amazing a Savior. To trust that he will accept you, to trust that he will forgive you. That was his mission. That's why he went to the cross, for the sick of soul and for sinners. And so during this time, this is your invitation to place your trust in Christ. As we remember, you should repent and believe. Okay. Bow with me in prayer. Let's approach.